Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. The sporting week has barely begun and already we've established a very important fact. Rory McIlroy is a better man than Patrick Reed. <laughs> How else to interpret McIlroy's dramatic victory against his hated rival on the final hole of the Dubai Desert Classic this very morning? Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Hey, Owen. How's it going? Hey, Owen. Hey, Murph. Not bad. Nice to have some breaking Monday morning news to report. Nice to watch a sporting event with you in the office for the first time in a long time, Murph. Yeah. Even if the amazing climax was completely ruined by... So there we were, Ken. Trampled all over the punchline. Let me explain this. Myself and Murph in here. Crack a dawn. Crack a dawn. Watching Patrick Reed. We watched the full 18, didn't we? Uh, uh, the full 18, that was Rory, it, yeah. Rory teed off at around 6 a.m. For the so purposes we were in, of we were in here story, for half five. We were yeah. here for half five. So yeah. in the last few weeks, Patrick Reed has thrown a golf tee and a subpoena at Rory McIlroy. <laughs> <laughs> he put in a scorching final round to chase McIlroy down, only to falter towards the end, allowing our Rory to fight back. McElroy then nearly puts his tee shot in the water on the 18th hole, recovers, gives himself a 12-foot putt for the win. Oh, and then Simon lands oh. in. Was it a oh, French? Simon Quarter to 11. Oh, what's this? Oh, yeah, great. I'm just We realised... Uh, 10 hours kip, do you know what I mean? We realised too late that Simon was watching on a feed that was about 10 seconds ahead of us. <laughs> so the f- first contribution, barely even had he said hello, yeah. Simon's first contribution was... Yeah! And we're like, oh, Jesus, unless you're a massive Patrick Reed fan, we know what's happened now. Yeah, yeah. All our hard work thrown then. Was, I was actually annoyed yeah, even watching the winning. You were, you were actually annoyed. Like, wow, this is ruined. It wasn't me. even just that it kind of sullied the moment, it completely ruined the moment for you. Yeah. I was actually going to banish Simon from the microphone until the rugby bit, but you said hi at the it must start. Must be of nice show, to so. see my joy, though, my natural joy. No, it wasn't. No, it was half. It, wasn't. No, it, was it was just like, hey. <laughs> it was just you, extremely annoying. You didn't exactly set the office alight with it either. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I should say. But DP World Tour, come on. Since we spoke about the McElroy Reed tea throwing incident last week, Rory had this to say. Yeah, I mean, I was subpoenaed by his lawyer on Christmas Eve. So, I mean, of course, like, I'm just trying to have a nice time with my family and. and you know, someone shows up on your doorstep and delivers that, you know, you're not, like, you're not going to take that well. So, um, you know, again, I said in there, I'm, I'm living in reality. I don't know where he's living, but, you know, I, I don't, I, if I were in his shoes, I wouldn't expect a hello or a handshake either. Probably fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if Patrick Reed was the nicest man on the tour and then did that, you'd still be pretty annoyed at Patrick Reed. Yeah. And let's face it, Patrick Reed hasn't, it's, Patrick Reed's career has not been just a festival of making friends and making and putting smiles on people's faces for the however long he's been on tour before this. The footage of the tea throwing incident emerged again after we spoke last week. It was even more lame than it sounded like before we'd actually seen what happens. McElroy's just there in his hunkers. His, his caddy, Harry Diamond, is that his name? Yep. Does indeed, we can confirm, does greet or yep. is greeted by Patrick and shakes his hand or whatever. But no, Rory's not getting off his hunches. So Patrick Reed. I would say throws a tee at, on the ground. Floats. Floats a tee on the ground. I don't, you know, he didn't exactly no power. dart it right at his yeah, yeah, yeah. forehead. Or it like like it's, it, a tee just sticking out of Rory McIlroy's calf. 
like it was shot from a from a cannon or something. But this morning was amazing. Then, so the two of them end up. It looks as though Reed is going to turn the whole thing around, win it. Imagine yeah. Patrick Reed after beating yeah. Roy McIlroy. But he drops a shot and he doesn't, he fails, falters a little bit over the last few holes. McElroy himself wasn't exactly flying it towards the end, but drives, has a drive on the 18th, which is inches away from going into the yeah. water, where he's hit it before. I think he no, moved. not that body of water. It's on the second, the second shot. So his approach to 18 uh, ah, uh, last, year, last year and again, uh, yes, yeah, yesterday, the third round was Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it came very close to a rather you know, unpalatable that would have been uh, a situation to, uh, this early on a Monday then, morning. But, then uh, decides to lay up and then nails has to up get up, up and down from 92 yards and yeah. does the Does it brilliantly, yeah. So yeah. that was nice. Did he use his post-round interview to settle any scores? I'm sure that's what you're thinking. It's no secret that there's been a lot of noise surrounding this week. Uh, given, I guess, who was in the chasing pack, did that spur you on? You know, I, I think mentally today... It was probably one of the toughest rounds I've ever had to play because it would be really easy to let your emotions get in the way. Um, and I, I just had to really concentrate on focusing on myself, uh, forget who was up there on the leaderboard. Um, and, and I did that really, really well. Um, you know, I, I feel like I, I showed a lot of mental strength out there today. And again, something to really build on for the rest of the year. I think we can read between the lines there, particularly when in the follow-up question to that, when it's moved away to another topic. I think McElroy again, references... How yeah, he basically said what Simon said there when he was uh, absentmindedly writing off the DP World Tour in January. He said, this this mattered a lot more than it should, basically, is what McElroy said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah so... Mark, <laughs> I mean, do I think you, do we you hate Patrick Reed? Do I hate Patrick Reed? Yeah, I mean... You know, I th- Murph's like, not a hateful man. No, no. If you're, wa- if you're going around wasting your time hating golfers... Patrick Reed, I mean, yeah. Got trouble. Let, let's just say... I mean, I was happy Rory McIlroy won. Uh, this was uh, a lot more fun than we had any right to expe- uh, expect. Mm. Like the last two days, basically, when it looked more and more likely that Reed was going to uh, hang around. And, you know, I, I mean, I saw someone tweeting on Saturday, which was like during the second round, it's like, oh, McIlroy Reed playoff. It's got to happen. So everyone was kind of watching with like McIlroy Reed as a thing. I mean, am I happy that Patrick Reed is out there in the world pissing off this amount of people and possibly giving us, well, giving us the high drama we saw today? Of course. I mean, he adds greatly to the gaiety of the nation. So I'm, I'm, I'm all in favour of Patrick Reed as long as, you know, he doesn't he get, win tournaments. As long as he gets beaten yeah. on the 18th. Good news, everyone. It's Six Nations Week. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Back to Campbell, back to Duggan, McLaughlin going for that line, and Ireland are in and over. Ireland top of the world going in this year. Gatland is back at Wales, England, life after Eddie. How many times is that now that... Are you serious? Gatland. How many times have you been Wales? Man? Oh, the amount of articles I read over the last few days talking about how he first pick up, picked up the phone to the to Connacht after he'd been at Galwegians and dug them out of a hole and the, the whole backstory again I'm like I can't believe I'm still reading this uh, in a, the build up to an Ireland-Wales yeah. game about Gatlin coaching Galwegians in the late 90s yeah. you know it's absolutely a bloody great job though there's France looking for back-to-back Grand Slams Italy are stronger than ever well sorry stronger well they are I mean they are yeah, yeah I'd say so they've, they've got Kabul, players in the tournament yeah. exactly yeah just want to hear and, people saying the word Kabuzzo and a Scotland of course the next few weeks yeah, well, Scotland. Scotland. So there's a lot, a lot of stories. Scotland are there. I, I, I don't know if you've heard. But they're in. 
they're feeling quite bullish as well. I'm sure they are. A lot of things coming together. Oh, we that's all got our big that's Six all Nations preview on Thursday for World Service members only. Sign up now on secondcaptains.com. By which time we'll know the team selected by Andy Farrell to play Wales on Saturday. Today, very shortly, we're going to set the scene with Stuart Barnes and yourself, Simon. Happy Six Nations week, first of all. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, apology accepted for ruining our fun this morning. Mm-hmm. No, sh- no shortage of storylines anyway. Is it the Gatlin one that's... Yeah, it is actually. So you're picking because... Up you know, he sort of has defined the Six Nations era. He's the best coach. He has those four titles, uh, the three slams, was runner-up twice on top of that. Um, it's a three-year gap. As he said himself this week, he didn't ever see himself returning, obviously. Uh, but in those three years, he led the Lions team that lost the series to South Africa. That almost killed the sport of rugby. He had that one season with Waikato where he lost every game. So that's what he's done since he was last with Wales. And he's been brought back not because of some brilliant plan by the Welsh Rugby Union, but out of desperation. This is the team that lost to Italy and Georgia, obviously, in recent times. He doesn't have Sean Edwards or, say, prime Alan Wynne-Jones anymore or George North. They're diminished figures, obviously. Um, But this Gatlin-Wales partnership has its own synergy that I think we in Ireland, much as we analyse it, which we do and we will, we don't quite understand it Mm. and we will never because... You know, as a result of not really understanding it and maybe appreciating just quite how powerful it is, we tend to lose to them or struggle with them more than we should, given the playing talent. Um, and it's it's all the it's like the horrible cliches, the Six Nations cliches of Welsh history, the Principality Stadium itself, because a lot of those great wins and momentum uh, campaigns are built in the Principality. He gets he gets the big win against a team that are a bit better than Wales and then they roll on to a, a championship. It's the competition itself because remember they're not very good in autumn or summer very often. It's mm-hmm. it's actually Six Nations. Uh, it's the simplicity of his game plan and us going, oh, it's, his game plan is so simple. We should beat this and uh, they beat us. And it's everything in their game being awful from grassroots to the regions to the Welsh Rugby Union who are an absolute despicable shambles at the moment, worse than ever. We won't go into that today, but always... Everything's terrible except for the 15 lads that are on the pitch in the Welsh jersey at that time. And like he's won all those things. And then there's just a few little hints for him since he took over. The Ospreys are into the last 16 of the Champions Cup, beat Montpellier home and away. They have this brilliant back row of Tipperick, Faletau and this new guy, Jack Morgan, who I think is going to come through. He's Ospreys, who will tackle and scrap their hearts out and... Ireland are going to have to win this game. Like, we're going to have to wrestle this game off Wales rather than Wales handing it to us. Why has he come back, though, do you think? Aside from... The one thing you have to always consider in professional mm. sport, it's a, it's a contract. These are well-paid mm. jobs managing international rugby teams. But is there another reason besides that? It's funny. I heard him on the BBC uh, rugby podcast this week. And you know the way Gatlin sort of speaks in this kind of boring tone, but he's actually silently or subtly selling himself all the time, mm-hmm. sort of defending his record, say, with the Lions or defending how bad Wales have been in autumn internationals under him and saying, oh, we experiment for that. It's all about the Six Nations for us. Um, and that he's sort of kind of bringing up his own record a little bit. And I just think those three years since the Northern Hemisphere, certainly and the Southern Hemisphere have sort of gone, hang on, how good is this guy? Or is he sort of past it? And that is a genuine question now because he doesn't have Edwards with him. This is where Gatland exposed on his own with, I think, inferior players to what he had uh, with Wales when they won those Grand Slams. You can so, flip that. If he if he turns it around and wins a Grand Slam this time, mm. you'd be And like, it's Ireland oh, number one in the world. It's Leinster unbeaten this season. It's, you know, us playing this delightful rugby. Like, you couldn't pick a greater contrast in the styles of rugby as well. It's kind of perfect for, uh, you know, Jose Mourinho taking down Liverpool, kind of hateful, spiteful performance. Stuart Barnes, great to chat to you again. Hope you're keeping well. Very well, thank you. Delighted to be with you. I was reading the paper yesterday. I saw you tipped Ireland to win the Six Nations and have a tilt at the Grand Slam. So you're off to a good start here today. Yeah, well, I I thought I was on with you, boys, so I better do that. Um, uh, funnily enough, I've just been writing something for a French paper this morning and and I made the point that it's not just a matter in the Six Nations of who you're playing, it's where you're playing. Mm. And last year, um, I thought France would win a Grand Slam and I thought the key would be the fact that they played Ireland in, in Paris. Now, in the end, France won reasonably, but it wasn't easy. And I just I flipped that game on its head. And I and I play it at Dublin in, instead of Paris, and and suddenly I come up with a, a, a close match but a different scoreline. And I think 
that advantage uh, for Ireland is very big. And also, you know, England have got a habit now and again of raising their game against Ireland. Uh, but, but I think in, in Borthwick's first year, the key for England will be winning games at Twickenham. And uh, with England and France uh, at home, I think Ireland a very good bet for a, a, a Grand Slam, um, even though I would still say, if you said to me, who, who's your favourite for the World Cup? I, I'd say France just from South Africa and Ireland. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, we're... There's this, it's a funny one. We're in this weird situation that, that we've been in before. We're in four years ago when Ireland had done so well, the year before World Cup. And, uh, you know, you need to see the progress kick on again in the Six Nations. There's a slight concern nagging away that maybe we've maxed out under Andy Farrell. I mean, the, the performances in the November International Maxing World. at a very high level, but maybe there's nowhere else to go for Ireland. I, I think there is, to be honest. Um, and I think if, if, if they maintain that level the problem is other teams can see what they're doing so it makes it slightly harder for ireland um uh, but i think ireland are able to play uh, with such accuracy and pace in what they're trying to do that most teams in the world are quite a long way behind them and even if they gained a bit they haven't got a lot of time before between now and the world cup to, to pick them up and i think um I think that there's some nonsense talked about this island, uh, you know, their World Cup record and, and how well they do between. It's it's a new regime. It's a new management. It's a new mindset in, in the players. And I, I think that is um, so much bunkum. And I don't think the Irish players or management will will, will uh, worry a monkeys about it, And I, nor should they. I think they and France are still... Uh, making progress. It might just be uh, the one of them that makes the bigger progress. And the same can be said for South Africa is the one that will lift the pot uh, later in the year. Stuart, what we hope will be the difference between this year and the last time Ireland were number one in the world is that under Schmidt, brilliant and all as he was, still our best ever national coach, I think, that mistakes were seen as the enemy or uh-oh, we, we need to aim for perfection. And obviously he was he was a little bit of a control freak. Whereas you feel like with Farrell, he embraces errors. He wants things to go wrong. He knows things will never run smoothly. He wants to see how his team react in those situations. Now, they've won a lot of games recently, but really tested, particularly by, say, South Africa, by losing the first test in New Zealand. And I just feel Farrell might have the better mindset to cope with uh, things going wrong when they first go on. Because I think when England smashed us after that brilliant season uh, in the Six Nations, Tulagi ran up the middle and it seemed from that point on we were rocked back on our heels and never recovered. Whereas I feel like Farrell might be the better man-manager in that situation if things start going wrong for Ireland this time. I, I think you're right. I think Joe's, uh, Joe's greatest coaching feats were probably with Leinster. And that then moved on into Ireland in the early years. But I, I thought his problem was, and I think you touched on it quite wisely there, um, because he saw perfection, the only way sometimes you can do that is by having a coach, or the coaches think that they, they will take you through the whole thing, and it becomes very prescriptive, and it becomes slow. And if you remember, Ireland were winning games, but I, I can remember writing about it. They were just getting slower and slower and slower. And, and I recall the game against Scotland in the World Cup. They won the game, but I thought they were terrible. And I thought it was a terrible match because I thought uh, Gregor Townsend was caught in the same um, problem of, of, of trying to control too much. Uh, and I look at Farrell, and instead of slowing down and drawing in within themselves as a team in their quest um, not to make errors, he's pushing the bounds. And... and to win a World Cup, I think most teams have got to push the bounds as far as they can, and sometimes you go through it. it, it I mean, I, I'm a, I've been around a while now, but it reminded me very much of English critics before they won the World Cup. And, the, you know, they say England, you know, they, they didn't win Grand Slams, they blew it until the Ireland game, and then they won the World Cup. But what Clive Woodward was doing there was seeing how far they could go and I, I always felt that when the World Cup came along, England had always had more in the locker. And I think Farrell is pushing Ireland 
to the stage where if if things do get difficult, what do we do when the game plan's not working? Now, under Eddie Jones, England had no option, uh, never really worked out what to do with, with plan B. They didn't have one. I think Ireland are working their way towards that, and I think it, it puts them in really good stead. Leinster are unbeaten this season and they will obviously, most of the Irish players will be Leinster players. But what's been noticeable is the scrum struggling still, the defensive mall in particular struggling and Leinster being able to absolutely destroy teams with this beautiful rugby, frankly, but always still this nagging feeling that, you know, that's harder to execute, say, on a rainy day in Cardiff or against an English pack that are fired up for whatever reason. Um, and that's, I think that's the lingering doubt for us about our ability to replicate this game plan and this these wins. I, I understand that. But I would say, um, whilst Ireland is, is primarily driven by the Leinster experience, um, when there are question marks about the Irish um, stroke Leinster pack, I think two men are so important uh, and I think it changes everything. You talked about defending them all. I mean, in in Peter Omani, they've got one of the slyest devil of a back row forward you've got. And I think in, in Tyg Byrne, uh, you have one of the best second row stroke back row players on the planet. Mm. And I think those two in tandem add a real steal to the Irish pack. I, I still think I, I, maybe because Byrne is, isn't a, a giant, um, uh, either literally or metaphorically. We look at Eben Etzebet and you think, Christ. But this guy Byrne, whoever he plays for, I just see so much more coming out of them. I, I watched that Toulouse-Munster game and the two of them against a, a Toulouse team that are international class were fabulous. Um, and I, th- I think they make a real difference. If you were to say... Um, the pair of them got injured or one of them got injured, you'd have a problem. But all this talk about uh, Johnny and is he going to be fit or not, I think Bernan and in his own way Omani are equally important to Ireland. Sure, before we start thinking about France and about England, Wales have to be overcome this weekend and the Gatland factor has to be a major one. Why do you think he is coming back after all he's achieved in the game and all he's achieved with Wales before? Well, he, there's a, there's a great um, love between Wales and Gatland, and he's done wonderful things there. Also, um, it, it's less mentioned, but it, it was it's been a disappointing return to New Zealand. He went back as coaches of the Chiefs, um, didn't do well, ended up going upstairs. Um, his defenders have tried to brush that um, under the table. But it didn't work well in a, in a, in a, in a culture where uh, more positive rugby was pursued. And he's gone back to Wales and, uh, you know, this will probably be his, probably not definitely, his last coaching job. Uh, and he'll he'll really want to, to finish with a bang because it was going out with a bit of a whimper in Waikato. Um, and I don't think Wales have got the class or the strength in depth to win too many games. But I think with Gatlin there uh, and with um, some exceptional scrappers in the back row, uh, that's not fair on Tipperick. He's more than a scrapper. He's mm-hmm. high class. But w- with the players they've got up front, with Gatlin there, I think they'll be far harder to beat this year than they were last year. Um, but they might find it quite hard to win as well because I think they may be a little bit blunt. Let's face it, even in the the Welsh Gatland Grand Slam era, um, attack was never their forte. So they're going to have to defend like hell in a few of these matches. Like I say, I think they they will improve, um, but I just don't think they've got the personnel to, to push the big guns. Do you think he's potentially exposing himself here without obviously Sean Edwards, without Alan Wynne-Jones at his peak and generally an inferior squad, you would have to say, to those Grand Slam years? Yes, because um, uh, you know, uh, sports are hard. It's a hard old business, and you know, I for one often said, you know, Wales don't play great rugby, and I never thought they could win a World Cup because the performance levels weren't high enough. Now, if 
but people didn't care because they were winning. So even if they lift their performance levels from last year, if they find themselves losing, um, there won't be a great deal of mercy. There will be a lot of people saying he was a great coach for Wales, but he, he came back. So it, it's brave from Gatland, but, you know, he's a competitive man and, and he's, he, he's been coaching for a long time. And like I say, I just can't imagine him sitting there in Hamilton enjoying life too much. And when the opportunity came back, um, Gatland would take it in a country he loves and a country that loves him. There's still a tendency, I think, here to underrate him somewhat. Warren Gatlin, because he was a very young coach when he was involved, despite making some progress with the Irish team when he was involved with the national team over here. What what do you make of his um, of, of Gatlin's body of work that he's put together, in particular with Wales? Well, like I say, I I, I don't think it's pretty, and I, and I say the same about a lot of the Lions stuff. I, I thought he got the South African tour all wrong by trying to imitate the Springboks rather than take them on a different way. So I think there are limitations to his game, but Gatland is a, a, a mighty motivator. And I think by and large with Wales, he's been an excellent selector. So you get those things right in, in a rugby hotbed mm. uh, like Cardiff, then you're going to be hard to beat. And he's done that really well. Um, he has a passion for the game. He's been, he's been, uh, he's done very well with uh, Welsh front fives that, take Alan Wynne-Jones out of the equation, have never looked overly powerful, but they've always held their own. So I think he's punched beyond his weight, um, but he's regarded as a great in Wales. I wouldn't say that because I just don't think there has been the the, the level of performance. Uh, and I would say... Three, this, three um, Grand Slams, though, Stuart, you have to say, as, yeah. as, a, as a lover of the Six yeah, Nations like the I rest know, of us, that, to, to, to do three I, I Grand Slams say, and win four titles. I mean, that is, that is, that is great coaching. Well, it's, it's great coaching, but you have, to, you have to look at the level of competition. You know, and I've been saying, I, I think we are in a vintage Six Nations era because two teams, Ireland and France, are amongst the best in the world. And that means that you've got two exceptional teams, as we saw last year. Now, if you look back to the Wales era, um, fair dues to Wales. They've got three Grand Slams and four titles. But if you compare the Six Nations in that period to the Rugby Championship, you would have to be a Northern Hemisphere xenophobe to believe that the Northern Hemisphere was anything like as good. And the fact that all the World Cups bar one have been won by the Southern Hemisphere tells you about the supremacy. Now, I would look back to last year's Rugby Championship and last year's Six Nations and say uh, Ireland and France played better, uh, more attractive, more winning rugby than the Southern Hemisphere. And 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 I, I said that in in in... Uh, during the tournament and I think the results afterwards for the rest of the year have borne it out and so you know I would say yeah it's a great achievement for Wales but I think you know if Gatlin was playing against this island or this French team it could be very different. Stuart, we were saying earlier in the show because he's gotten to two World Cup semi-finals as well so it's not just Europe that he's done well in but that we, there's something in Ireland, I think it's the same in England, where we don't fully understand and will never fully understand the alchemy between Gatland, the Welsh national team, the Welsh fans, crucially, because he gets a lot of those important big wins in Cardiff, and the way it all sort of creates momentum and they go on to these championships and Grand Slams. And it, it makes us continually underrate him because Ireland have lost, I think, the last four times in Cardiff. And Every time this has been happening for a long, like 15 years, really, of us thinking we've got better players, we should beat Wales, and generally we don't win nearly as much as we think we should. And I think the same happens England. Do you think there's just something we don't get there, some chemistry that makes us continually underrate uh, Gatland and Wales? Yeah, I, I mean, I, like I said, I think he's a, a magnificent motivator. Um, he's got a... The, the principality is an unbelievably atmospheric stadium as well. And Gatland is very good uh, at pressing all the... Warren's very good at pressing all the right buttons in the lead-up to an international. He gets the whole place right on the edge of its seat, you know? And um, as a kid who grew up in Wales and went to what were Five Nations matches then, um, you always felt this 
unbelievable bristling atmosphere uh, in that ground. And now it holds 25,000 more and, and the atmosphere is even greater. So it's, it's, a, it's a really hard place to go and win. You know, if you talk about stadiums, I, I think it's the biggest advantage uh, that there is for any team in the world. Um, maybe Eden Park is the other one. And, and that enables Wales to just fight their way through um, superior opposition uh, or superior in least in terms of uh, skill and, and technical ability, but not necessarily that will to win that that means so much in Cardiff. You know, you, you said it, Ireland have lost their last four games in Cardiff. Um, I, 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 I don't denigrate Gatland's achievement, but sometimes you have to look at things. And I just think... These are superior times in terms of the standard of rugby because of two sides. It's the first time that the Northern Hemisphere has probably been more likely to win a World Cup in, in the calendar year than the South because they've got two of the best three teams. And that's, that's never been the case with Wales. And while Wales did make two World Cup semi-finals, Gatland is a very clever, very cagey bloke. Um he had Edwards with him as well. And don't forget, the Welsh defensive pattern uh, has always been significant. So that'll be interesting as well. You know, Ed Edwards has proved himself beyond doubt mm. uh, with Wasps, Wales, and now France. There's no question about that. Uh, and, and Gatlin had him with Wasps and Wales. It'll be fascinating to see uh, how the Welsh defence goes because Wales predicate their game uh, on stopping the others and then squeezing them. They do not play anything like Barbarians, rugby. They squeeze you. You know, Bigger's been the key man. They play territory. They play kick and they chase a lot. Um, they're not dissimilar to uh, a couple of year period under Eddie Jones with England. Um, no risk rugby and you win, but you're going to get people like me who who want teams in this hemisphere to go on and challenge the best in the world to sort of grumble and mumble and sound like grumpy old men and saying, yeah, okay, it's good enough for an average Six Nations, but it won't be good enough for World Cup. Well, what about Steve Borthwick's England then? What, what can we expect, Sean? Uh, Stuart, I should say. I don't know. I, we'll ask Sean. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, right, what can we expect that's different? There'll be, there'll be a happier bunch, and, and that sounds a, a little bit sort of new age and naff, um, but I don't believe uh, under Eddie Jones, the last few years, it, it was it was the vibes were not great coming out of there. The, the, the fear of failure overwhelmed the uh, sense of achieving something. And I think Borthwick, Evans, and uh, Sinfield in particular are all very positive blokes, so that'll help. Uh, that's the intangible. The tangible. Uh, it's hard to believe that for the last couple of years, uh, England have struggled so much um, up front, but they have. And the, the the basis of English foundations has always been a very good set piece, and they play a game from there. And if you remember 2019 World Cup, they had a really good pack. And because of that, the halfbacks were able to play front foot and forward and Farrell, though they kicked a lot. They kick teams deep and under pressure and put a squeeze on. Because England's pack has been so average by English standards for the last two years, they have not been able to play that territorial game and they have not been able to pressurise and put the squeeze on. And that makes a lot of difference because they've also, in England, struggled very much, unlike, say, Toulouse and Leinster, to find a way to play two-second phase ball. So it doesn't matter what your backline's like. If you're getting slow phase ball, uh, you're really struggling. You're going backwards, and that's what's happened to England. Borthwick, I think, will give them those foundations, which will give them the options then of playing it dull and kicking. Mm -hmm. And I don't think with Nick Evans there they'll do that. And I think we'll see uh, a greater attempt to play quick phase ball like Harlequins do in England. And you'll see an England team... Uh, that will possibly be more inventive behind the scrum because of what Borthwick's going to give them um, in the basis. I, I watched London Irish last yesterday when they beat Harlequins, and and 
I don't think anyone, no one's mentioned it to me today, but I, I saw a fly half, Rory Jennings, played 12 to Paddy Jackson. And he sort of, at a lower level, admittedly, but he tore up the whole script about the big crash ball running inside centre who the, the 10 needs to play off. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm a subscriber to you want a big 12. But if England do go Smith and Farrell and they get quick ball, what Jennings showed was a second fly half playing outside the first one gives you running lines, gives you timing, gives you variety, but you have to have quick ball. And for the duration of the Farrell experiment, it hasn't been quick ball. And that's hurt not only Smith, it's hurt Farrell and it's hurt any attempt from England to play with wit and invention. So, you know, maybe when we're saying Smith and Farrell, it's it's been a failure. Maybe part of the problem has been they just haven't got quick ball because they haven't had foundationally strong first phase ball. So, you know, there's an awful lot there that sort of merges together. But but I'll be very interested to see if Farrell plays, how quick England try and play face ball. I've been listening to various ex-players, people who played alongside Borthwick, the likes of Danny Kerr and Ugo Manya and Chris Ashton, and how this guy, even in his playing days, Borthwick this is, could spend like five, six hours straight on his laptop analysing lineouts, and obviously he's gone to another level as a coach and won the league with Leicester last year. But the, I suppose the view on him generally was that this is a guy who's quite earnest, quite a nice fella, a um, bit of an introvert, but not a visionary. So he'll he'll get uh, England doing their basics far better than before, but maybe that next level that England need to go to won't happen under him. Or is he smart enough to realise that the likes of Nick Evans uh, need to take their job or, or give them, he gives them their head and lets them do what they're good at and steps aside for that stuff? I think he could have taken a number of easy options as an attack coach. The fact that he's gone from Nick Evans, who is perceived as being diametrically opposed in his rugby vision to Borthwick is great news. I think Steve Borthwick is a confident enough man to listen to others. Um, I think Eddie had been around so long, um, he couldn't control his own ego. And in selection, you have to have other voices saying, are you sure? Uh, this looks to me an England management that will have uh, the ideal number of voices just discussing things between them. And, and Borthwick, will want to get right the parts he's very good at, but he will understand, you know, Steve Borthwick as a player, one of his fundamental weaknesses, there was a time uh, under Martin Johnson where we got this obsession with statistics and, and all the players were looking to get as many touches as they can. And Steve Borthwick suddenly started getting 20, 30 touches, but he was a terrible ball carrier. He went backwards rather than forwards. And I think he learned a lot as a player there. Because he, I think after a while he realised he was a line-out forward, a scrummager, and a bloke whose job was to hit rucks because he wasn't dynamic and he wasn't powerful. And I, I think that Borthwick is a very clever man. He's someone who learned from his own playing experiences. And he will put together a team where the 23 blokes are, are, are best suited to do what they do and do it well. And it will need Nick Evans there to explain certain things because, let's be honest, Leicester's title was a sort of uh, England light. George, George Ford uh, was mesmeric in his tactical control, uh, but it was based upon solid foundations in the set police and territory. It was like a, a good club version of England. Um, so that won't be enough. Some coaches would just try and do the same again. He won't. He he he's brought Nick Evans in. He will learn um, other ways to approach the game. He's, he's a clever man, um, and I think it's a good signing by England. Scotland have beaten them the last couple of years, though, Stuart. What are you expecting to happen this weekend? Oh, I don't know. It's it's a really tough game. I, I, I look at England. It's the first game, and you expect what do they call it in football the bounce factor with a with a new coach. But yeah. you know, I. You know, I wrote in the Times today about the problems Scotland have got in selecting their team of problems England would love. England can't work out what the hell their midfield is. And it might take them a while to get the right one. And with Slade, Slade gone, that causes problems. With Scotland, you know, you've got 
Russell, uh, uh, who has been a real thorn in English side in the last five years. They have Tui Pilotto or Redpath, who are talented players at inside centre. They've got Harris, who's a magnificent defensive organiser, and a bit more than that. Or they've got Hugh Jones, who's in tremendous form. I mean, it will depend very much, I think, on the mindset of Townsend. So I think they'll probably go Tui Pilotto and Harris. Um, but that's a good balance outside um, Finn Russell. Um I watched Ben White again play for London Irish. My God, he's playing well. He left Leicester to go to Irish. And right now, if you said from three years ago, the Leicester scrum halves, whilst Jack Van Portfleet would be my first choice for England Saturday, I would say Ben White's probably playing better than him. Uh, Scotland have got excellence in the back row. Their scrum is much stronger. Um They've got a lot going for them, and, and they're not scared of England anymore. You know, in in, in my playing days in, in the in the the nineties, we got to the state eighties and nineties. You just Scotland didn't think they could beat them, uh, and you might say one thing, but saying something and believing deep down are, are very different. The Scotland team believe deep down now, and I think psychologically. The pressure is on England and they can say we got a new management, we're not under pressure. But they're at Twickenham and England being England, there is a perception that England should be able to beat anyone at Twickenham and that doesn't always play into their hands. And I don't think Scotland will be the least bit afraid and I think if you looked at the uh, squads 1 to 23, I haven't done the, the, the exercise, but there'll be plenty of Scottish players in that English team. So you're saying Scottish win? Uh, 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 right now, um, it's one of those. I'm, I'm, I'm a gambling man, as you may well know, um, but I wouldn't be betting. Um, I would. It's one of those things when they get the handicap, you could, they go one and a half points either way, and I, I just think it's. I think it's that tight. I, if England win, it's going to be very close. If England lose, it's going to be very close. I, I think it's going to be a very tight match. And then if Scotland do go well, the question is, can they kick on? And that has been their problem. Uh, Gregor allowing the handbrake to be released when they've had a good result and and, and really going for it. If Scotland do win, I hope that that Russell has has handed the keys to the Scotland team and they said, let's go for it. Yeah. At at the same time, then, if England do win, they have a nice little draw. They have Italy at home and then Wales away. And whereas, as you say, like no matter what Catlin does, uh, the player pool isn't uh, the playing pool isn't amazing. So England could be feeling quite good about themselves by the time France come to Twickenham. Really good psychologically if England win, no matter how. Uh, for England, it is not about performance; it is about getting the win and getting going under Borthwick. Um, as you say, Italy next. I'm a, I'm quite a fan of what the Italian backline are doing, but it, it's a leap of the imagination to expect them to win at Twickenham. So as you say, it's two two for two. Then comes Cardiff, and I would say with Gatland in in and Wales in Cardiff, I would no matter what happens in the first two games of the Six Nations, I'd be calling Wales England as I've just uh, tried to. Um, call England-Scotland. I I wouldn't want to guess either way. But England will be in a great position because I think that if if they win three games this year, it can be regarded as a successful tournament. Uh, It would just take a blinkered Englishman to think if they got four or a Grand Slam, anything but would would be failure. Three would would be good. And, you know, they've got... Obviously, Ireland away is going to be hugely difficult for them. Um, I would expect France to beat them, but but England can find a way to lift their game for France, and it is at Twickenham, and Wales is a is, is a really tight call. So England win the first two, you know, the shackles are off a little bit. The, the pressure's down. They've just got to find that one win from somewhere. What I've taken for this conversation, Stuart, is Ireland to win the Grand Slam and then march on to World Cup glory in a few months' time. So we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much, Stuart Barnes. That isn't what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Stuart. Pleasure.
da domani Capuozzo prova ad andarsene Capuozzo 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 Novak Djokovic fairly let it all flow after winning the Australian Open final yesterday. I'm sure we're talking about letting it flow in a different context on the football pod today. Oh, why would we be talking about that, Owen? But I'm talking about emotions here, Ken. Someone emailed us. Oh, no, we'll, get, we'll get to that first. <laughs> His 10th Australian Open title, Djokovic, he won yesterday. His 22nd Grand Slam, tying Rafa Nadal for the all-time men's record. He also moves past Nadal in tournament victories including regular tour events. He reacted by climbing into the team's box and promptly collapsing to the ground, overcome with emotion, was barely able to climb back down. He's just struggling. He was still feeling it as he sat in his chair, in fact, head and, head and tail, sobbing away. Amazing. He'll do very well to get himself together for the ceremony. So you can pick up the noise there. Can you hear? Could, you could hear the sobbing because I mean, yeah, I, having I seen it, was, it, I thought it was I my dog had someone met it into the office and was like <laughs> whining at the door to get in. But Ted, that, well, that Ted's like here, but Ted, Ted's not a whiner. No, Ted's a pretty no. quiet dog. So he did gather. Oh, you were going to say something else there? No, no, no. Go on. No, no, I'm just looking at Ted. You know? Yeah, just sleeping. Yeah. I just like a little. I like a dog with a bit more spunk, is all I'm saying. But listen, that's fine. That's even fine. While you're, even while you're trying to record, a well, podcast. yeah, no, I think this is the even right the right can. style of dog for for yeah. a studio. So he gathered himself, Djokovic, for the ceremony. But that show of emotion, it's good to see, isn't it? Isn't it? Uh, for someone who so often gives the impression, surprising of, to see. Yeah, so just remorselessly and coldly grinding down opponents and racking up grand slams, but then. I mean, I'm going to say I probably think it's a little performative one, but hey, that's just me being harsh on Novak Djokovic. I, did, I didn't think this was performative. If it was performative, he pulled off a, a masterpiece, Murph. I'm mm. afraid you've got to... Some of those Irish Oscar nominations are going to have to get <laughs> nudged out of the way here because Djokovic, Djokovic is coming to Hollywood. Like, he really was. He really was upset. But I, the, what it was was pent-up emotion. Mm. And the problem is... I, I found him more watchable because it's the usual it's, it's that thing of oh he's showing emotion do I like Novak Djokovic now then you think of where does this pent up emotion come from firstly it's his return to Australia where he yeah. was booted out of the country last year harshly treated perhaps but a situation that could have been avoided with you know uh, some different actions on his part and then the big one this week was the absence from the stadium of his father. He wasn't at the final because he got in a spot of bother during mm-hmm. the week, photographed on Wednesday at the tournament with supporters of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Shridan Djokovic met fans outside Rod Labour Arena and took photos with a spectator wearing a Z symbol shirt. The spectator was wearing the Z symbol shirt and was brandishing a Russian flag with a large picture of Putin's face. So these characters were around the place and Djokovic has this photo. Djokovic's dad has this photo with them. Uh, there's a video of it that was put up. Djokovic Sr. appears to say a phrase, I won't, I won't attempt to pronounce it, but roughly it translated as, as long live Russian citizens. And this, this was what was reported at the time. Now, Djokovic said his father was just walking through a gathering of the players' fans outside. There were lots of Serbian flags and so on. And he'd been misused by the Russian fans before quickly continuing past but it's just never that simple is it when mm. you're looking at Djokovic and go wow look at all this emotion it's great and then you're like oh see what you like about Novak Djokovic going on. But, and then yeah, yeah I mean it's not you know it's his father it wasn't he wasn't the one outside with, mm. with those supporters but it's just it's always complicated with Djokovic he was faultless yesterday in fairness except for the barb aimed at legendary Australian tennis player Ken Rosewall I mean you've obviously heard about <laughs> this right this has taken over the tennis world, right? Well, no? well, of course, but maybe you might just want to explain for Ken there. You know who Rosewall is, obviously? Muscles. Oh, of course. Muscles, as yeah. he was known in the yeah. in his pomp. Old Muscles Rosewall, they called him. It was ironic, even at the time. He wasn't well, a particularly yeah, I mean, Muscles yes. individual. Rosewall was the guest of honour at the awards. Have you ever watched the Australian Open awards ceremony? It's absolutely excruciating. It's this epic event. For example, did you know that uh, Kia have stayed on as sponsors for another five years? <laughs> and the crowd are like, yeah, <laughs> Kia. <laughs> not quite, but not a million miles off that. And Djokovic publicly thanks the legendary Rod Laver 
for being present in the stands. Thank you, sir, wow. he says, as the camera pans to Rod Laver and then pans back to poor Ken Rosewall, who's standing right there, Ugh. right beside him. Rosewall? Rosewall won 23 majors, including the pre-open era. He beat Rod Laver 63 times. <laughs> 63? Yeah, I mean, he was beaten about 100 times by him. But listen, he had, his, he had his number for a second. Don't get me started on his outstanding doubles record. I know the rocket Rod Laver eventually got his number, beating Rosewall 13 times in 1965 alone and playing what he considers to be the best match of his life mm. in the 4-6, six, 6-love, six 6-love six victory. This was in against the... Um, Ken Roswell? Against Roswell. This was, of course, in the... Um, Los Angeles. In the, yeah, of course. 1968. One, yeah. But yeah. if Laver himself is prepared to acknowledge Ken Roswell has consistently been my toughest opponent on any surface, then surely... Muscles is worth a shout out when he's two feet away. <laughs> Djokovic practically had to shout over. The sorry, sir, could you just get your. <laughs> this tiny little freak here in front of me is blocking my view of Rod Laver. Yeah, there's a bit of that, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I'm telling you, you've got to watch the, the prize giving ceremony at the Australian mm. Open. It's one of the mm. unheralded gems of world sport. <laughs> wow, it sounds like, uh, like the tennis itself is just a, a precursor. US Murph coming up tomorrow. If he's willing to speak to us after the disaster that the San Francisco 49ers found themselves living through last night. Wow, wow. And uh, Six Nations preview during the week, as I said, more rugby, loads of football coming up. Secondcaptains.com, five euro a month plus fat. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Murph. Thanks, 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 Thank Thank you, Sam. Thanks for listening. And the Second Captains podcast is, of course, part of the ACAS Radio Network. That's the second time it's gone off. They never got home. They never got home. They never got home. Those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sports important. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.